passage this morning is from Matthew 1, 1 through 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez and the father Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon the father of Robam, Robam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Yuza, Yuza the father of Joab, Joram the father of Asa, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azkor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliahud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were fourteen generations in all from Abram to David, fourteen from David to the exile of Babylon, and fourteen from the exile of the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Rox. So when I asked Rox if she wanted to read, um, do the scripture reading for this week, last week, and then she's like, sure. I said, all right, it's the genealogy, and we just started cracking up. And I just told, I told her, like, when she comes up, she could just, like, put the Bible reading on and just put it next to the mic, and so I'll read it for her. But um, it's good to be with you guys this morning. It's always an honor and privilege to uh, preach from the Word um, to you guys. Um, so one thing that I love about the holidays is uh, the festivities, the overall good spirits of the people. We have Halloween uh, coming into Thanksgiving, which we just had, and then there's Christmas. It's the best time. And then um, it closes out with uh, a a New Year's celebration. So there's the food, the parties, the people, um, the lights, the the presents. And so I wasn't always a a big fan of celebrations. until I had, um, Lauren and I had our own kids, and then that's when I begin to appreciate celebrations and birthdays, you know, seeing the kids' excitement and their happiness, their joy, it just pulls at my heartstrings like nothing else. And so this month of December, it's especially special because um, it's Christmas, right? There's presents, the kids are excited, they get their advent calendars, they make their Christmas wish list, they put up the tree, We're going to get our tree after service um, today. And 
man, they're looking at underneath the, the tree all the time at which presents are theirs. They're very excited about Christmas. And so Christmas Day comes. They wake up early. They set up our six piles of presents, plus one for the two dogs. And, and man, they, they can't wait. They put on the Christmas music. They pull Lauren and I out of bed. And we begin to open presents, seeing their oohs, their ahs, their shouts of joy. Man, it just, it just melts my heart. And so Christmas is my favorite time because it's also the most visible and tangible reenactment of our own longing and our own search for something even deeper in life. Like the kids were in eager expectation of Christmas Day when we get what our heart desires. And we find that our greatest need, our greatest desire is the Savior of the world. It's Jesus Christ. And so for this month, we go through an Advent series like Rich just said. And Advent means coming. The coming of what? We find out in our sermon text that Rox just read. Uh, seems like a pretty boring, dragged out list of names at first until we dig a little deeper. And so our first point is this, the significance of this genealogy. In R.C. Sproul's commentary on this book of Matthew, he tells a true story about this missionary woman uh, who is sent out with Wycliffe Bible translators to this rural place, um, to this rural people, and she lives among the people, she learns their language, and she begins work on translating the book of Matthew. But she leaves out the book of, she leaves out the genealogy in this book. And so she sends it out, she gets the books back, she disperses it, and she's frustrated, right? She's frustrated that a few years go by and there's not a lot of progress that's being made um, as people are reading uh, the book of Matthew. Eventually, she persists, she, she presses on, she um, puts out a second translation, edition of this uh, book of Matthew. This time, she includes the genealogy. And so she gets, sends, the book, sends it out, gets the books back, disperses it. And this time, the tribal chief, he's, he's amazed, right? He comes up to her and asks, is, is Jesus Christ a, a real person? And she goes, yes, of course he's a real person. He goes, all this time, I thought you, this book was a fictional story with a fictional character named Jesus until he finds out that he's historical, right? And he soon, soon he believes in Jesus, he believes the gospel, and the rest of the tribe soon followed after. And so the first thing I want us to note about this genealogy is that it tells us about the historicity of an actual man named Jesus who lived and died. He comes from a line of historical men and women. He's not a made-up person. The gospel is not a fanciful story, but it is historical. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want us to note is that Matthew, he intends to show his skeptical Jewish audience that Jesus is indeed uh, the Messiah, right? that he's the person he claims to be. He's the Messiah. He shows Jesus is the direct descendant of Abraham, uh, King David. He's the rightful heir of the throne of this kingdom. He's the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for for hundreds of years. This Jesus guy, he's the one that fulfills all of these Old Testament prophecies of the coming king. The third thing of significance to note is that this genealogy is unique. It shows how God works in history. It shows us the countercultural nature of the kingdom of God. You guys remember when we were in um, grade school, uh, one of our assignments was uh, to buy, buy this large poster board and uh, to map out our family tree, right? So some of us were able to map out to our great-grandparents 
and then to our sets of grandparents, our parents, our uncles, aunts, cousins. And this was kind of a fun way to uh, show us who was in our family, right? It showed us uh, kind of our pedigree. Um, and, <clears throat> and the point, sometimes it was a point of pride knowing um, where you came from, right? Sometimes you're like, oh, okay, my great-grandfather, he served in World War I, served our country, I'm proud of him. Or my great-grandmother, she was a well-respected author. Or my dad, he immigrated over to San Francisco, busted his butt with a bunch of odd jobs, saved a lot of money, went to college, he was able to raise a family in this Bay Aryan American dream of a life. So he's proud of that, right? For some people, a family tree, a genealogy is a point of shame and disappointment when you find out that you come from a line of alcoholics abusers, murderers, prostitutes. Overall, for us in our American culture, we're very highly individualistic. Uh, we value autonomy a lot. And so the importance of a genealogy might be a little bit lost on us. But back in the ancient Jewish times, man, genealogies were very important. Family was very important. It was typically a, a point of pride to share and to flaunt your pedigree to show where you came from if you were such an important person. For us nowadays, we're not so vain to say that our great-great-great-grandpa was the savior of a nation. Instead, we have Instagram, where we're much more honorable and respectable by posting pictures of ourselves and our dogs and our children to rack up likes and online followers. Uh, Beyonce has 135 million followers. <clears throat> Kylie Jenner has 151. The Rock has 165, and the most is Cristiano Ronaldo, he has 190 million. That's a lot. Rich has 392. <laughs> and I have 418. So I'm about 26 more people more important than Rich. So we have Instagram today. And back then, they had their genealogies. And what's kind of crazy is that it was common practice to edit these genealogies. King Herod, who sought to kill Jesus, he edited his own genealogy for personal gain to make himself look better, to fit his own narrative. He was uh, the ruler and king over the Jewish people, and he wasn't even Jewish. Right? He was actually a descendant out of Edom, a neighboring nation, but he converted to Judaism and he edited his line so that people would respect him, so that they would follow him. You can think of these genealogies kind of like um, how we edit our resumes, right? We put up all the best stuff, we leave out all the jobs we got fired from, we, on our dating profiles, we um, say we like to have nice walks on beaches and we leave out that we're lazy when it comes to dishes and laundry, right? The point is, is that we're all trying to look better. We're all trying to impress others. We're all trying to be respectful. And that's what these genealogies were back then. And in our text, Matthew, he also gives us a genealogy and it is in fact edited but unlike King Herod's line where he leaves out all the bad people so that he'll look better, Matthew's line of Jesus includes people that weren't always respectable. He shows us a pedigree that is realistic and messy. So this brings us to our second point, the messiness of this genealogy. Here's uh, three subpoints in this, in this one point is we have gender outsiders, racial outsiders, and moral outsiders. What do I mean when I say messy and outsider? So first with women outsiders, to understand what this means, we have to understand 
that back in the ancient times, this was a very patriarchal society. Women were rarely listed in genealogies, but here, Matthew, he lists five. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, which we know is Bathsheba, <clears throat> and Mary. And let me just make it clear that I'm not at all saying that women are any messier or inferior to men. In fact, I have a lot of great women in my life. Um, my wife, Lauren, she's amazing. Her life is chock full of achievement and accomplishments and success. She's always been the breadwinner of our family, except for maybe the first two years when we got married. But I'm not, <laughs> I'm not counting. Uh, she's much smarter than I am academically. She could probably beat me up, which is also isn't saying much. But she's a great wife and mom. I'm very proud of everything she's accomplished. I'm proud of who she's become as a person. She's such a great heart. I'm simply riding this life on the coattails of her success. We always joke that uh, she only experiences failure through my failures. <laughs> I also have two daughters, which I love and want nothing but the best for. They can probably beat me up as well. My point is, is that the context of the ancient culture needs to be made clear in order to understand the weight of what Matthew is trying to tell us about this countercultural nature of the kingdom of God. And Matthew, he unashamedly, he unashamedly places these women in this otherwise patriarchal genealogy to make the point that, man, God uh, includes, he pursues, and he loves the outcasts. He loves the outsiders of society. He loves the marginalized. He loves the weak over the strong. Besides women, we also see non-Jews in this lineup. And why is this important? We currently live in a heightened time of uh, racial tension, and it's always been there, but with the state of current U.S. politics and the unrest of those that feel unheard and marginalized on both sides, uh, talking about race is always very sensitive, right? It's, it stirs up a lot of emotions. This has always been a problem. All throughout the history of humanity, there have been atrocities atrocities that have been done by entire nations of people against other nations and people that they looked down on, that they saw as inferior. They saw these guys as a subclass of humans that uh, were to be conquered and enslaved. We become so protective of our race and our culture to the detriment and harm of others. I have no doubts that all of us here have been discriminated against because of our race. Um, We've been called racial slurs, and it sucks, right? It sucks to be looked down on for something that you have no control over when it comes to your ethnicity, when it comes to your upbringing. And what I love about the gospel story is that God, he works to break not just the gender barriers, but to break racial barriers. Tamar and Rahab, they were Canaanites. Ruth, she was a Moabite. And to the ancient Jews of this time, these guys were outsiders. They were unclean, they were dirty, they weren't allowed in the places of worship. But here, Matthew is again showing us the countercultural nature of the kingdom of God, that the gospel goes from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, to all people, to all nations. One day, all of us, every tribe, nation, and tongue is going to be a family of God, worshiping before the presence of God. And so this is why our church wants to reach our surrounding uh, communities, right? Because nobody is beyond the love and reach of God. So we see Matthew, he lists uh, women outsiders, racial outsiders, 
he also lists the morally flawed. Uh, in verse 3 up here, it says this, And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar, she was the daughter-in-law of Judah. She's widowed. She's left without any kids. And back in those times, socially and culturally, having a husband and having kids was um, a woman's livelihood. It was their security. And so Tamar, she asked Judah for another son to marry so that she can have kids. So, but Judah ignores her request. And here she is. She's widowed. She's childless. She's probably desperate. Years go by, and Judah is now widowed. And one day he's out on travels. He sees on the side of the road a, what he thinks is a prostitute. And so he solicits her services. He does his thing, and he pays her with his cord, his signet, and his ring, basically his ID, not very smart. And he carries on. A few months later, he finds out that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. And he orders her to be put to death because of her sexual immorality. She then reveals the signet, the cord, and the staff of Judah as a person who got her pregnant. And so he confesses. She lives to give birth to two sons, Perez and Zerah, Jesus coming from the line of Perez. You see, this is, this is scandalous, right? Pretending to be a prostitute, incest, and this story is in this genealogy. We also see Rahab in verse 5. She's both a racial outsider, she's a prostitute by trade, and she's brought into the people of God. In verse 6, King David, it says this, <clears throat> And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. King David, the man after God's own heart, he was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Right? That's kind of weird. Why would he... Why would Matthew say that? Why not just name her? We know her name is Bathsheba. You see, Matthew here, he's intentionally reminding us that King David betrayed Uriah, his friend, his close guardsman that risked his life to keep David safe. And David, he lusted after, he stole Uriah's wife, he impregnated her, he schemed to place Uriah on the front lines of battle so that he would die. And so David could take his wife, Uriah's wife, for himself so it wouldn't look bad. So we have prostitution, we have incest, we have backstabbing, we have murder. There's more stories in here that we can't get into. We don't have the time to. Do you guys see <clears throat> how messy this genealogy is? Matthew, he's telling us that Jesus not only comes from royalty, he comes from broken people. He comes from outsiders, outcasts. Why does he do that? He's showing us, again, the nature of God's love in the gospel, that it transcends all social and cultural barriers that we place between each other. He reaches far beyond what we think he might reach. Nobody, nobody is beyond the reach of God's love. If you're feeling like an outsider, an outcast, like you have a broken and scandalous and uh, a past of immorality, None of this is beyond God's reach for you. God seeks you. He welcomes you into his family. He wants to restore your heart. It also doesn't matter if you're an honorable, respectable, and high member of society. Your pedigree, your accomplishments doesn't save you. So to the immoral, to the prideful, there's only one way to God. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is our last point. Our third point is the seed of hope. <clears throat> uh, verse 17 says this. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. The first thing to notice here is that this is a long time. There are a lot of generations that pass between Abraham to get to Jesus. It's estimated to be about 2,000 years. This is a long time to wait for a promise to be fulfilled. Man, we could barely wait for a response in text. But let's think about a more realistic struggle for us, something that we can all relate to, right? Think about feeling stuck career-wise, feeling stuck in your job that you hate, not knowing when you'll be able to get out. Think about uh, waiting for a guy or a girl to come into your life so that you can get married and to get settled down. Think about wanting kids and having a hard time, a hard process to get there. Think about sickness and suffering, not knowing when you're going to be delivered, not knowing when there, if there's going to be healing, not knowing where God is. This idea of waiting for God, I think, is probably the hardest thing in the life of the Christian, in the life of faith. You know, hearing the promises of God that he's for us and not feeling, not seeing it realized in your life. This undoubtedly causes a lot of people to lose faith, to walk out, because it doesn't seem real. It seems like God has forgotten us. This is a very real struggle that all of us have faced before or are facing now or will face. We seek hope and deliverance in our lives. We pray earnestly and urgently for God to come. And it feels like a lot of it is in vain. This is where we feel the gap between what God promises and what we experience. It doesn't always feel like it matches up. This point can be a sermon in its own, but for now, let me just say this. God's timing and our timing are rarely in sync, and we need to set proper expectations. It took 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus And then think about the 400 years of silence from the Old Testament prophets to the coming of Jesus in the New Testament. What were God's people thinking? What were they feeling during this time of waiting? Were they hopeless? Were they hopeful? We want immediate gratification in our lives. And the Bible teaches us to be ready, yes, but to be patient, to wait, to trust that God is working even when it doesn't feel like he is. And that is hard. But this is what Christmas time is and the season of Advent, Advent represents. It represents the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago, his work of salvation for sinners, and now it's a time of waiting. We are in eager anticipation and longing for this future day when Jesus will come again to make all things right. This is a certain hope that we have that we're waiting for. And finally, as we close, in verse 17, Matthew, he breaks up the generations of people listed in three groups of 14 or six groups of seven. The theme of rest and restoration and renewal, it's, um, it's, it's big in the Bible. It's huge, right? It's very important. And the number seven is symbolic of perfection, completeness, goodness. It, repre- it represents a perfect world, both physical and spiritual. Right? It represents heaven. In Genesis, we're told that God rested on the seventh day of creation as a foreshadow of this rest and renewal that 
all of creation is going to experience for all of eternity. God is going to make all things right again. We see this theme again in the Old Testament. After six years of working and farming the land, uh, the people were to leave the ground fallow, to let the land rest, to replenish its nutrients. And so the seventh year, it represented rest, renewal, restoration for the land, represented a spiritual rest as well. And the last and seventh year are seven rounds. So that's kind of confusing, right? Basically, the 49th year, it was called the year of Jubilee, where slaves were to be set free, where all debts were to be wiped clean, all slates were cleaned and cleared, and everybody was to rest from their work. But of course, nobody was able to follow through with this year of Jubilee. Nobody, nobody was able to experience that rest that they longed for, that they wanted to see. The leaders, they were corrupt and abusive. The people, they were cynical, they were jaded. And so Matthew here, he intentionally crafts this genealogy in this way to show us that when everybody else has failed us, Jesus is the leader, the champion. He is the king that will usher in the actual rest that we need. Jesus is the true fulfillment of the Jubilee. He is the one that renews and restores us in every single way, spiritually, physically, emotionally. He is the one that we look to for restoration for our brokenness, rest from our weariness. And church, as we begin to feel and believe in Jesus, our desires and our longings will be less and less about our own selfish wants and desires. It'll be more and more about wanting Jesus, just Jesus, wanting others to see Jesus. So this is what Christmas is about. It's about the coming of a king that seeks out the broken, the one who will make all things right and new. This is the Jesus we long for. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are humbled. We need you. We know that we long for you. We want deliverance from our sorrows, from the bad things in life. And God, it doesn't always feel like you are there, but we're humbled as we read your words to us that you are there, that you promise to be there. We pray, Lord, that you would connect our feelings with the truth of what you have shared with us, God. We thank you for the coming of Christ, that you reach out to the outsiders, the marginalized, the outcasts of society. You lift up the weak and the broken. God, we thank you that you are working, that you are coming. Pray, Lord, that you remind us of this truth daily. Our hearts are fickle. We don't always believe. We ask for your forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that you would remind us in this community at Risen that we would come alongside each other in our pains and sorrows in life, that we would point each other to you, knowing that there's going to be a day when all things will be made right and new, and that is our hope. 
promises to us, Father. We thank you for Christ as he comes humbly as a man, born humbly in a manger, coming from a city, a no-name town. That gives us hope, knowing that you don't come with riches and, and with, with force, but God, you come humbly down to us, knowing that we need your gentleness, your kindness. So we thank you for this truth. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would come. You would make all things right and new. Be with us, Father. Christ name. Amen.